you have to work your honesty muscle on a daily basis um, so that you're ready for the crisis, not if it hits, but when it hits. But just begin the process of committing um, and ruthlessly interrogating the places in your system where there are contradictions. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Howdy folks, it is RJ Singh here at Ultra Habits and we are super stoked to bring you our next guest this week, one of my favorite contributors to the Harvard Business Review, Ron Carucci. Now, Ron has a 30-year track record helping executives tackle massive challenges within their strategy, organization, and leadership. We're talking about startups, the Fortune 10s, non-for-profits, and heads of states, turnarounds to new markets, and effectively overhauling leadership and culture to redesign for growth. Now, Ron has authored eight books, including his most recent, To Be Honest, Lead with the Power of Truth, justice and purpose. And that's what we focus on in this conversation. It's all about why leaders within organizations need to be transparent, lead with honesty and truth, and basically keep it real. Now, Ron is a proud member of the Marshall Goldsmith MG100 coaches community. His work has been featured in Fortune CEO Magazine Incorporated, Business Insider, MSNBC, Business Week, and Smart Business. I really really know you're going to enjoy this conversation ron is a true thought leader super happy to have him on the show please listen let us know what you think reviews 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 if you haven't yet go to www.ultrahabits.co and sign up for the weekly newsletter there's a bunch of cool stuff in there anyways y'all i'm going to leave you guys in the capable hands of ron enjoy the conversation Peace. All right, Ron, welcome to the Ultra Habits show. It is 7 a.m. here in the land down under Melbourne, Australia. Where are you coming uh, from, Ron? Where, are you, uh, where do you hail from? Hi, RJ. Nice to uh, be with you today. Um, I am actually coming from uh, just outside New York City in suburban Connecticut. There you go. So, Ron, I've actually read multiple uh, articles of yours in the Harvard Business Review, been a fan for a very long time. So it's really great to have you on the show. I really resonate with a lot of your content, a lot of your literature around organizations and organizational design and behavior. So, again, it's really great to have you on the show. But before we jump into the content, I wanted to ask you, about something that I read uh, about you and your antique doorknobs and keys and your kind of tick around having a different mug every morning that you uh, that you use that you kind of select from your conference room. Can you tell our our audience a little bit more about what this is all about? Yeah. So um, I wish we were, I, I'm, I've just moved to a new home and we haven't, I haven't moved into my new office yet, but otherwise you would be able to see them behind me. But I have um, these three large jars that are filled with skeleton, antique skeleton keys and doorknobs from all different eras and all different kinds of um, places in history, um, knock door knockers. <clears throat> and I, I made, I used to make them as sort of um, sculpture installation arts as a, as I, as gifts for people who I thought were, 
incredible door openers, people who could understand that our job here on the earth is to open doors for others and to make a way for them. And then I decided I wanted to make some for myself um, because I think it's a, they're a wonderful reminder to me that you know, if I think about some of these doorknobs that are hundreds of years old, how many hands have passed through the thresholds of those doors and how many stories have gone through those doorways and how many doors have been opened for other people and for me. And a reminder that I'm part of a bigger story and my job is to open doors for others so they can find a bigger story for themselves. So that's the, that's the doorknob story. Um, in, my, in my conference room where our coffee, we make our coffee, I have mugs from all over the world that I've collected from vacations and trips and events I spoke at. And uh, when I begin my day with my coffee and taking my vitamins and all that good morning ritual stuff, it's a, when I pick one, it's great for me to sort of pick somebody to bring to, my, to bring to mind to be grateful for. People who have imprinted my life in really important ways, people that I love and care about, my, my kids, my family, my siblings, um, special clients, people that I've met, thought leaders that I admire. But it just, it helps center my day around, um, A, I'm not the only thing in the story, and B, there are so many people in my own cloud of witnesses that uh, I have to be grateful for. And so I, I start my day by being, thinking about one of them and uh, drinking my coffee that way. I really love that. So I'm obviously a habits person. And part of that, part of habits can be looked at as rituals. And um, I'm a non-active Freemason. And within Masonry, there's a lot of rituals, allegory. I think having physical cues to help remind you and recalibrate is very effective because what happens is in the flow of life, we can get lost in the content. And I like the way that what you've done is very early in the morning, you've reset yourself by a physical reminder. And uh, I, I, I really appreciate that structure. That's kind of why I wanted you to unpack what we're going to do now is we'll jump into the your your newest piece of work. You're a multiple time author, as we know, and you've recently written a book called "To Be Honest: Lead with the Power of Truth, Justice, and Purpose." So, why this book now? Well, I think for such a time, for such a time as this, right, our day, we don't have to look around too far to see how hungry the world is for leaders that can trust for organizations that can believe in, for people who act in ways we want to emulate. Um, we, we are barraged with stories on a regular basis of leaders who behave corruptly, behave selfishly, behave immorally, with organizations that, you know, overextended on their greed to a place of harm. And I think we're disheartened. I think the world is starved for something better. Uh, and I think we can do better. And I wanted to know, you know, under what conditions people do people behave fairly, tell the truth and serve a greater good, and under what conditions they lie, cheat, and serve their own interests first. And I want to know, could we predict it? And if we could predict it, could we prevent it, or could we proliferate it if it's good? So we did a 15-year longitudinal study of more than 3,200 leaders um, to see if we could detect those patterns, to see if we could isolate when and where they made the choices they did. Uh, and it was ex extremely exciting. Um, we used some really cool IBM Watson artificial intelligence technology to help us do the analytics and the, and the, and the stat models. And we did indeed find four predictable conditions uh, hiding in plain sight in organizations that um, arbitrate which way people will choose. 
or at least strongly influence which way people will choose. Um, I think that we need to have a, change the conversation uh, on honesty. The book certainly broadens the definition of honesty because you know what we found in the data was um, it's no longer enough not to lie or not to be considered a liar, to be considered honest. Today, truth, justice, and purpose are now the integrated definition of honesty, meaning you have to say the right thing, do the right thing, and say and do the right thing for the right reason. The, the wonderful thing about writing the book was that it's a book of heroes. I wanted to, I didn't want to know any more about the Toronto story or the Wells Fargo stories or the Volkswagen stories. I, we're all tired of those. I wanted to know who are the heroes I could be proud to know? Who are the organizations that were doing things that I want to emulate, that I'd be proud to follow? And so I assembled an extraordinary set of folks that I got, I got to spend a year talking with. Uh, and the book is really a curation of their stories. Can you share some of these stories? Because you're quite right. I think we live in an era of doom and gloom and sensationalization and the good, be, it tends to be lost through the bad. What were some of these stories and can you share, unpack them a little bit for us? Oh gosh, there was so many. Um, Hubert Jolie, the CEO of Best Buy, um, went in and his, you know, his, him and his new book on uh, the heart of business are out now telling his story, but he was a... Um, one of the earlier interviews I did, and he's a good, also a good friend. <clears throat> and he simply wanted to turn the, the, the narrative of retail electronics, which was a dying business or a difficult business because of online retailers, to a different place and invited all thousands of employees to think about when are we at our best? How do we want to live our purpose? How, how do we make this a platform for your purpose? Uh, and reignited an incredible revolution at that, at that company to uh, an amazing place and inspired thousands of people to serve customers, to see customers, to think about their role in the world in a very different way. In your research, would you say that when we're looking at employees and alignment to the objectives of a firm, are they in the firms that have been successful uh, in getting employees to um, align with their firm's objectives, is it a case of the employees <coughs> sacrificing their self-interest or has the firm done a good job at aligning the objectives with the staff's or the employee's self-interest? Uh, I think if a firm has articulated a genuine and believable purpose, a reason why we're here, a reason why we serve, the greater good we want to have in the world, um, that certainly provides them a platform from which to then cascade their objectives and set their goals and metrics. Too often, those purposes are purpose washing, meaning they're just the, the intent to create the appearance of being purpose driven while your real goal is to just make more money. I think the organizations that, organizations that do this well are the ones that first begin by asking people, why are you here? What's the fingerprint you want to leave? Satya Nadella, when he took the helm at, at Microsoft, began by asking his senior team, you know, Microsoft works for you. How is Microsoft a platform for you to have your impact in the world? How is Microsoft a way for you to leave your indelible imprint and unique imprint on, on the world around you? And so I think like Uber Jolie did at Best Buy, I think we need to invite people 
to shape our purpose with their purpose so that people can look at the bigger story and say, I see myself in that story. I feel part of that story. It's a story I want to contribute to versus that's a nice slogan or what are we doing that for? Or uh, yeah, interesting words, but that's not how you actually do things around here. And so I think, you know, it's a, it's a, we all, listen, all of our organizations have statements of promises that we have values, we have mission statements, we have vision statements, we have purpose statements. What most organizations fail to realize is that those are promises. They're not just marketing campaigns. Whether you intended them to be or not, whether you understood or not that you are making a promise, those promises are being calibrated by your employees, by your customers, by your suppliers to see whether or not you keep them. Do your actions and words match? Do the words on the poster or on the lobby wall look like how you do business? Look how you lead, like how you lead, like how you can, can communicate, like how you spend your money. And what was one of the factors we found in the research was that if those actions and words are aligned, meaning the purpose you say you serve, the reason you say you are here, and the way you live your life, you're three times more likely to have people tell the truth and behave fairly and serve a greater good. But if their actions don't align, if they're lip service only, if they're words only, um, you've institutionalized duplicity. You've said to people around here, we say one thing and do another, as evidenced by these words. What you've then done is give everybody permission to follow suit. So around here, it's okay to say one thing and do another. And when you've done that, now, statistically, you've now increased your odds by a factor of three that people will lie, cheat, and serve their own interests first because you've told them it's okay to do that. So are you, would you say that firms that have categorically failed in the ethical space, and we know a lot of them, right? Would you say that the firm was not made up of bad people? You would then sur sur surmise that the firm failed their uh, articulation to the people around purpose and how we conduct ourselves. Like, I guess what I'm trying to ask you is, do you feel that people in these firms that have categorically failed in the corru through corruption would have been very different had the leadership been able to articulate uh, the values and 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 um, and and pursue this thread of honesty. Uh, I don't know that I'd say it was that it was that simplistic, RJ. To simply, if you if you say it, then you you are it. <clears throat> I do think that the, the 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 more common failures in the categorical you know, collapse of an of an Enron or mm -hmm. WorldCom, I think the far, the the far more common failures are far more insidious and small. Um, I, I think our, what we learned from the research is that articulating your purpose is of no use at all. It's mm. um, people, we, you know, we, we, we found plenty of companies that people understood the purpose just fine. They just didn't believe it. Uh, so y you only actually are believed when you activate your purpose, when it <laughs> comes to life and people are, people, are, people are modeling it, living it, and expecting others to live it. And that's just one of, we've found four factors in our research that, you know, sort of separate the sheep from the wolves. A clear sense of identity, being who you say you are, was just one of them. Let's unpack those four factors. What are the other factors? The second one was, was accountability. Was how much justice and how much dignity is there in how you talk about people's contributions. You never hear anybody say, I am so excited for my performance review today. 
Um, you hear them dread it. They lose sleep. They are anxious. They feel disappointed. They feel like the system is rigged. The system that should be the most honoring uh, and inspiring in our organizations has become the most demeaning and demoralizing because the way we treat people's contributions is undignifying and unfair. You know, what we built these systems, you know, decades ago when people's remits were the same, when people had, you know, how many claims you filed, how many t-shirts you printed, how many boxes you packed. Well, today you have a workforce of people whose remit is as unique as they are. Their ideas, their analysis, their creativity, their solutions, their radical ideas. And so when you treat sameness as if it's fairness, that's when you make it unfair. When you don't treat the contribution as if it's a reflection of the, of the contributor, you don't treat it with dignity. Today, we have to insert or reinsert dignity and fairness. We have to believe when we show up at work that I have as much of a chance of success as anybody else. That, you know, in a tech company, we have, the engineers aren't the most privileged. In a marketing company, the branders aren't the most privileged. In a growth company, the salespeople aren't the most privileged. Because if those privileges are there, you know, getting in the way of my ability to succeed, then, then I don't believe the system is, is, is stacked in my favor. So um, when accountability systems are seen as just and uh, dignifying, you're four times qualified to have people be honest. Um, transparency and decision-making was the third. So if I walk into a room, into a meeting, and I believe that what's happening around the table is an honest exchange of information, the data has not been scrubbed or tainted or tilted in some direction to engineer a certain reaction, that my voice is welcome, that, that my counterpoint of view, my dissenting idea is safe to express. Um, that's transparency and governance. Now you're three and a half times more likely to have people be honest. But if I walk into that room and I think it's orchestrated theater, that it's just, you know, you, you have an agenda, you're spinning the data to, to get me to think a certain way, you've left part of the data out, and the last thing you want is my, my disconfirming point of view, now we have no transparency in governance at all. So now you're three and a half times more likely to have people be dishonest. And lastly, uh, um, cross-functional themes, the, the border wars that we typically have in organizations, the, the classic sales and marketing, supply chain operations, marketing and R&D, um, if at those intersections where the most competitive value of your company gets created, if there's a healthy way to resolve conflict, if there's a sense of we-ness, meaning we're all part of a bigger story and together we create value for a greater good, um, there's a way to resolve the healthy tensions that naturally show up at those scenes. Now you are six times more likely to have people be honest because now you have coalesced your organization. Into a, into a shared truth. But if you have fragments, if you have the classic silos, if you have border wars that remain unresolved, if people see them as a they, here's they come, here's what they want, and you have we's and they's in, in, in rivalries at those borders, <clears throat> now you when you fragment the organization like that, you then fragment the truth. So it's no longer the ability to find a shared truth. It's now my, my truth versus your truth, and my only intent is to win. Hmm. Now you're six times more likely to have people be dishonest. And, and the interesting thing about the statistical models, RJ, is that they're cumulative. So if you're good at all four of those things, if you really can learn to have reasonable mastery in those, you're 16 times more likely to have people say the right thing, do the right thing, and say and do the right thing for the right reason. But if you suck at all four of them, 
Now you're 16 times qualified to put yourself into a headline story you never wanted to be. So I'm going to unpack this a little bit. Uh, a theme that came out of the first season with people from all types of backgrounds, corporate, military, athletics, something that was quite surprising. And I reflect on it, reflected on it later and realized how important it was for me in my corporate journey and success was this concept and reoccurring theme of psychological safety. Because for me, what you're talking about is organizations where people feel that they can bring who they really are to the organization. What would your feedback or what would your view be on psychological safety and the companies that you spoke to that were successful in these four categories that you've just mentioned? So in each of those statistics I gave you, you know, three, four, three and a half, six, 1.03 of each of them is the dimension of psychological safety. So anywhere from 20 to 40% of those factors is based on whether or not people felt like it was safe to share their own, tell the truth, whether it was okay for them to show up with their own voice, whether they felt welcomed to do so, that their, their descending voice was received by a welcoming mind and heart. <laughs> so it's a vital factor. It, you know, you know, Amy Edmondson was one of the people I interviewed for the book. So her voice is, you know, she's sort of the, one of the original thought creators of psychological safety 20 years ago. Um, and even she would say it's not a silver bullet, right? It won't solve all ills of, of a culture, but it certainly lays an important foundation. And so, you know, even if you reduce the 1.03 from each of those factors, you still have a high risk factor of dishonesty in any one of those behaviors. And all those conditions are conditions that are hiding in plain sight. How many people, how often do you see people roll their eyes when someone references their values or mission? Or, you know, feel angry when they get categorized by, you know, I had one client who I, I've been coaching for a while and we met after his performance review and he's open, you know, I, I knew it was right after it was done that we were going to be meeting and he came on the screen. It was a virtual call and his name, his veins were coming out of his neck. He gave me a three and I'm always a four. I'm always a top rating. My last couple of days were five, but HR said there's a quota now, so I can only get a three. What the hell? Who got the four? <laughs> and yet we know from brain science, from neuroscience, that our brains are triggered when we get categorized. Categorical thinking makes us, you know, feel threatened. His amygdala was in hijack because he got a three. Not, not those dignifying experience. Because I read the, I read the form, I, I read the words. I, I wanted to see what was going on. There were, there were balanced feedback. It, it was fair developmental feedback. It was, there was nothing wrong with it. He was still on track to be a successor for a big job that we were working towards. Nothing had changed, but a number sent him over the edge. So, you know, it's, you, we have these systems that, that de deconstruct psychological safety simply by, by their device that, uh, of putting people in boxes. So I think it's, you know, to, to long way to answer your question, RJ, it's, it's a critical, vital, important part of creating cultures of honesty. Hey guys, just wanted to take a quick break to thank you for your continued support of the Ultra Habits Show. It's through your support that we've been able to scale this thing so quickly and so strong over the past year. And we're truly grateful for your continued support. If you haven't already, please go to www.ultrahabits.co and subscribe. You'll get 
cool information, insights, and be up to date with everything we're doing. And also, if you haven't, please rate this podcast. The link is in the show notes. When you do this, you help us scale our message of ultra performance, ultimately helping us create more impact with our tribe. Anyways, we're going to leave you back in the hands of our wonderful guest. Would you say certain sectors, like what if I'm running a financial firm, Ron, Wall Street, you know, you know where I'm going with this, right? I'm like, look, we're, we're results driven. We're type A. We're all about making money and we're doing that. Why do I need to embrace this philosophy, Ron, and it's a bit kind of too mushy and, and warm and fuzzy? What is your feedback to that? What would you say to that? Um, you know, I'd say good luck with your career. Uh, you know, many people have thought that, right? The problem with um, slippery slopes is that they're all they're all engraved with the words. At least I'm not as bad as. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, most people on most today would say we're not greedy like you know those those firms that are no longer here anymore. We would never do what they did in 2008. You know, that, that's a level of denial that's very dangerous. Um, greed as a force is compelling. And, you know, when you, when you don't, when it's unmitigated, when you have no reference point for people to, to act in other ways besides rampant, unfettered acquisition of more, um, you're inviting people to consider compromise. Um, mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean every financial services company is like that. I mean, I think there are plenty of large and small firms who put enough guardrails in place, but then you're trying to, you're trying to litigate honesty with policy mm. versus capability. Honesty is not a character trait. It's a muscle. It is something you have to be good at. And you, can, and you can regulate it to some degree, but if you don't institutionalize it as a capability and only regulate it as a policy, you're asking for risk. Yeah, sometimes I I think, and I was a bit young, uh, but I do remember my big brother watching the movie Wall Street and Gordon Gecko's speech on greed. Sometimes I I wonder how much that impacted wannabe stockbrokers and and how that played out uh, in 2008 and around that time. Just um, and I do agree with you. I I do wholeheartedly agree that honesty, um, like any other virtue is an action. It's a muscle. It's not something we need to feel. Um, and that's a whole philosophical piece. What would you say to an organization like my company is, you know, we've got 35 people and I'm on the leadership team and we are incorporating values like what you're talking about into the DNA and how we operate, but it's easy because we have a small firm. What happens and what would you say and what needs to be done when an exec is looking at his company and he's like, oh, my God, there's institutional dishonesty. Where do you even start, man? Like what what's what's the process? You know, I don't think you have to do a wholesale overhaul of your company. You know, you have to preserve what's good. But I think simply start by. I mean, we have a, an assessment tool for those four factors. Start looking. Where are, where are you not living up to your words? Where is it okay 
for duplicity to take play the place of integrity? Um, how are your accountability systems? How do people feel treated? You know, um, when, in, in your QBRs, when you're reviewing the, the last quarter's performance, how many people are thinking, you know, while they're watching some of the presentation, this is such crap, but saying nothing? When the, this is the fourth, fourth quarter in a row, you forecast something we know damn well you're never going to meet. Who is your they? Who, who are the people that you, when you hear them coming or you know you have to work with them or they need something from you, you think, oh, God, here's they come again. Why, why are they there? And by the way, who's they are you? Who's, who's paying the ass are you when, when someone needs something from you? Mm. So you can start, you know, all, all honesty is local, right? You just, just, just start constructing the way to reach levels of honesty. You're, you're not there. Here's the great news about the, the, the models we built. It's not all or nothing, right? What we found is, for example, uh, a 20% a improvement in alignment between your actions and words and your identity will lead to a 12% improvement in honesty, right? So you don't have to sort of go to perfect in all four of these dimensions. You can continue to make strides. What you have to do is commit to a long-term, you know, effort of growth, right? You don't, you don't say, I'm going to get in shape today. And then go to the gym and say, I'm going to best bench press 400 pounds. That's not how it works, right? So you have to work your honesty muscle on a daily basis um, so that you're ready for the crisis, not if it hits, but when it hits. But just begin the process of committing um, and ruthlessly interrogating the places in your system where there are contradictions, where there are places where you say you value inclusion, but your promotion processes say something else. You say you value community, but but your you know none, none of your work is collaborative. You say you know so look at the places and listen to people when they tell you that things are not quite adding up. Pay attention to it may make perfect sense in your head, but if it's not living in the lived experience of those you lead, then pay attention. Yeah, I love this, Ron. It's a, it, it's, it's like you're bringing stoicism into the workplace. Uh, is it, I'm, a, I'm an existentialist, so I'm all about not how we feel or think um, about how we operate and how we operate then changes the way we feel and think. Um, and I think that's what you're talking about. And I, I suppose what I'd like to know is our final question is, the firms that you worked with that were very good at this honesty uh, piece, how did they habituate it into the culture of the organization? Uh, daily. You know, so uh, one of the stories in the book is Guidance Corporation, a CEO by the name of Ginger Graham. You know, she got every one of her executive team members a coach. But not a professional coach like me. She went down in the organization to the middle of the company, pulled out 10 of them, assigned them cross-functionally to her leaders, and every month they went and gathered feedback and gave it to their, their assigned coach, coachee. It began as anonymous, but eventually it turned to real data. She made everyone on her senior team give each other feedback. Mm -hmm. She ritualized storytelling as, as they grew and aggressively added people to the business. They ritualized storytelling to make sure that new members understood the stories of honesty and integrity. She put people on hot seats, you know, in town halls. It became okay to say, we, we missed this goal. Let's talk about why. So there are lots of ways in your systems and processes you can raise up the voices and raise up the ideas and raise up the, the truths that aren't being told. 
uh, and put them into the hallways, put them into the room. Um, look for the places where they're being, look for your own behavior. Where are you rolling your eyes? Where are you getting hurt? Where are you inadvertently uh, expelling voices from the room that you don't want to hear? <laughs> mm, well put, Ron. Very well put. Where can we learn more about your work? Where can we find the book? Tell us, where do we find you? So come to our website, navalent, N-A-V-A-L-E-N-T.com, where you'll find a treasure trove of white papers and blogs and videos and uh, several really important free eBooks on transformational change and virtual workplaces and organization design. Uh, you know, just hang out with us because you'll, you'll learn a ton about leadership and teams. Um, if you want to learn more about the book, if we have our own website for that. It's called tobehonest.net. Um, and you'll find there, our, we, did, we did a whole TV series. So you can watch the whole, binge watch all 15 episodes of, of Moments of Truth. We'll get to see the behind the scenes interviews with the heroes from the book that I spoke with. There's a, a free webinar on there about the, the research. We have an assessment tool you can download called How Honest Is My Team? Uh, and take it and assess yourself and get scored on whether or not you get the whole scoop from your, from your team or not. You'll also find a bunch of HBR and Forbes articles and podcast interviews like this one that I've done about the book. So if you want to learn more about the honesty stuff, you can find us there. Please follow me on LinkedIn as well. Thank you so much for your time, Ron. Thanks for sharing your truth and having such an honest conversation with me. Really enjoyed it. RJ, a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you.